You see crazy things in neurology. Absolutely <laughs> crazy things. A lot of patients ask me why I went into this field. And um, I tell them, well, I get to be a detective. I get to play with kids. And I get to reassure or try to reassure parents. So can you describe from the last few months a case that you remember? So this 11-year-old boy comes to mind. And uh, his parents bring him into the office. And the chief complaint is deja vu, okay, which is, a, as a neurologist, a jarring term because there's really only one thing in neurology that will cause deja vu, which is a temporal lobe seizure. But as a good clinician, you're trying to find any other possible explanation. And I meet this 11-year-old boy, and the parents say, every so often he will tell us that he feels as if what he was seeing or what he experienced had happened in the past. So I speak to him about it. And as most 11-year-old boys, you know, not, not so eloquent, not, not wanting to converse with me that much, but that's basically what he says. He actually said, things feel weird. Things look weird. So I didn't get the term deja vu from him but I had gotten the term deja vu from his parents. He was a normal kid, 11-year-old kid, went to school. What did he say to his parents to make them think that, because when I mean, the way you said it's so mild, things feel weird. He, I believe, said he felt like things were, his eyes weren't working well. That is the, that was the, that was the phrase he used to his parents. Mom and dad, I feel like my eyes aren't working well. And I assume that they dug for more of a description and he must have given them some description that led to them using the term deja vu. Or of course, the possibility is they went on Google for a while and Googled that and then found that someone else somewhere had had that same description and um, we have the ability in the outpatient neurology setting to obtain an EEG, which is an electroencephalogram. It is similar to an EKG. There are little stickies put in a set location on the scalp, and it measures the electricity between different points on the scalp and gives you a, essentially a brainwave display. And a routine EEG is a 20-minute procedure. And the child lies down, an EEG technician applies the stickies onto the head, and you look to see if there's anything asymmetric, if there's anything abnormal, and if there's any electrical little bursts, little discharges that would make you think that the child could have a higher chance of having an unprovoked epileptic seizure. So... I don't always obtain that because, as you can imagine, it's 20 minutes. It is standard of care. But I'm given like a four-question yes or no to try and decide if someone should have an EEG before I meet them. And when I'm finding myself in a situation like with this 11-year-old boy, I'm scratching my head going, hmm, you know what? Why don't we get an ambulatory EEG where the child will have the EEG put on their head, they'll go home, they'll do their normal things, they'll have a little button on their hip, and if 
they do something funny, feel something funny, if their parents see something funny, they'll push a button. And that's sort of a gold standard, obviously, if you could capture the episode. And so as the case, he came back a few days later because he can't walk out of the practice right then and there with an EEG on his head, came back a few days later, had it put on, and these were seizures. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. So my guest today is Marissa Prelak. She is a pediatric neurologist and a specialist in epilepsy, and she's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. On the 24-hour ambulatory EEG monitoring, he had 12... 10 to 20 second episodes of a seizure. So that led me to have a conversation with the parents um, over the phone, which I always phrase, you can come back and see me in the office with or without your child. We can discuss this, but usually the parents want to discuss it right then and there on the phone, that those episodes that your child described and you labeled deja vu are actually temporal lobe seizures and that leads up to a diagnosis of epilepsy, which is a jarring term, but just is for our information to know that he is at an increased risk for unprovoked seizures. And I would like to do some further evaluation, get some neuroimaging with an MRI, and start a daily medication, a daily anti-seizure medication. Their response was, why would we start a daily medication. Medications have side effects. These aren't harming him. And I think that's a great example of some of the daily conversations that I have with families um, and sort of the discussions of as a parent, I understand your concerns. As a neurologist, it's my recommendation. And conversations like that that really drew me to the field initially. We don't always have an exact answer, but we have recommendations, and we know that once someone is having seizures, they can change. They might not be brief in the future, and so it goes. And when you first determined these are seizures, I mean, there were a range of possibilities for why this child might have been having seizures, some of them more benign than others. So where did you do med school? I did medical school at Tufts University Mm -hmm. in Boston. So how did you come to choose? What were the stages for you? The stages for me, I was a neuroscience major in college because I found the brain and the uncertainty interesting. So we'll start with that. But certainly not all neurologists were neuroscience majors. I started medical school and I didn't know. I didn't know, I knew, or I thought I did not want to do pediatrics. 
So I actually asked to schedule my pediatrics rotation at the end of my third year because I never wanted to be a doctor for kids. Although I was a camp counselor, etc., I thought kids in the hospital were going to be different. I then stumbled through all of my rotations. I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to be an obstetrician. I wanted to be a family practice. Oh, and I was certain, each one of these decisions I was certain about, as any stubborn medical student would be. And then I did pediatrics. And I guess because I wasn't nervous about my grades, I sort of, because I wasn't interested in that rotation, sort of was a little bit more laid back. And then someone said, you know, you seem like you're having fun and you're doing a great job. I said, but no, I couldn't switch, couldn't switch my decision. And then I did a neurology rotation and that was it. Pediatric neurology, definitely. And for me, it was the uncertainty, the detective work, and just frankly playing with kids, because that's what the neurology exam really is. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. I trained in pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I then subsequently obtained my fellowship in child neurology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And then I did a one-year subspecialty fellowship in clinical neurophysiology and electroencephalography, which gave me, with all of those words combined, in fellowship in epilepsy and clinical management of those patients. And I am on clinical faculty at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I work a few weeks of the year downtown, rounding on patients in the inpatient epilepsy service, the inpatient neurology service, and the consult service. And for the majority of the year, I see patients in an outpatient setting at two of the satellite clinics. So what would you say... You know, if you, if you take a day where you're clinical, what does it look like from when you first get up through to sort of, uh, you know, you, you get back home? Sure. So I leave my house before my children wake up, which I think is key. Um, so we don't have to hassle with the goodbyes in the morning. I get to my one of my two outpatient offices, get there a bit early so that I can have some coffee, eat some breakfast, review my clinic schedule for the day, um, answer a few patient messages that are through our electronic medical record patient portal, and then I see patients. And some patients come early, some patients come late. I try and see them all. As you can imagine, that could be difficult if a patient comes late. And there are many, many reasons, traffic, getting out of school late, etc. And I will probably have some phone calls with other members of my department or perhaps a another physician that's caring for a patient that I am also caring for and I want to discuss management with. And then I'll drive home and have a typical commute at the end of the day. And in the days that I am in clinic, come home just short, shortly before dinner time and have, 
I guess, a typical evening as a parent of three young children, if there is a typical. So in a day, I go to two outpatient practices, which either look like a large building with up to 40, 50 other physicians, or might be a small building with one to two other physicians, where I have two clinic rooms where I will see patients scheduled for approximately eight to nine hours a day. I will see follow-up patients in a 30-minute time slot and a new patient in a one-hour time slot. Sometimes I know why the patient is coming to the neurology office. Sometimes it's a surprise. And there is a variety of possibilities for what I might be discussing with the patient. As a child neurologist, some common questions or leading concerns include developmental delays. Does my child have a specific delay in one area of development? Other questions include, is a funny movement that my child is doing normal? or is it pathologic? Is there a need for an intervention for a movement that my child's doing that we can discuss now or at a different point? Is a collection of symptoms that I'm seeing equal up to any sort of disease that I should be concerned about? Common other things include headaches, and then there are a variety of genetic disorders or sequelae of head injuries, just to name some. Yeah. Hmm. And so what's the breakdown of, of the kind of illnesses that you see? I would say 60% of my day will be headaches. These could be basic childhood migraines, variants of those childhood migraines, we might discuss optimizing daily lifestyle factors. We might discuss introducing vitamins that may have some efficacy. We might discuss prescribing a daily preventative headache medication to a child as young as four years of age. So 60% of my day will typically be headache. I would say another 20% would be either ruling out epileptic seizures or diagnosing epileptic seizures and diagnosing epilepsy and discussing further evaluation and management that's warranted. Another portion of the day will be, I'd say, 5% developmental delay concerns, another 5% funny movements that a toddler or a baby are doing. Um, in that, I typically do provide a lot of reassurance and I'm often talking to first-time parents about what is normal and what is not normal. And babies and toddlers certainly can do a number of very bizarre things that can be normal. And then I would say a small percentage, 5%, will be something like a tremor or something like a movement disorder that is present in, in a young child, teenage child. Rarely there will be a first presentation of a neurodegenerative disorder in a child as young as an infant, unfortunately. And I think that covers the... Talk to me about the headaches. And 
kids get migraines, but I don't think a lot of adults realize that kids get migraines. Yeah. You know, what, what kind of symptoms do kids get when they get migraines and how do they come into you? And maybe you could walk me through what happens when, when, when someone arrives at your door. First branch point is, is the child communicative or is the child not? And a child can be non-communicative for various reasons. They could be two, three, and not able to communicate as much as they would like. Or they might be an older child with um, autism spectrum disorder or uh, another type of chronic static encephalopathy or pervasive developmental disorder that's interfering with their ability to communicate. And migraines can look different in different age groups, but typically the child's stops what they are doing gradually, recedes into either a couch corner or into their bedroom, appears to not be hungry, and then may have a variety of different symptoms. Um, Not all headaches are migraines, of course, but migraines are the most common type. We do see tension-type headaches in kids or or headaches that just clearly don't fit into any one bucket. There are peculiar types of um, migraine variants in kids, children specifically between infancy and age five can present with what looks like episodic torticollis with their head neck turned to one side. They can present with what looks like a full-blown vertigo attack. Um, They can have abdominal migraines with significant nausea and abdominal discomfort. And we treat those as we would really the same as a a migraine in an older kid, albeit different medications for different age groups. And then there are some even stranger headache variants like an Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which was coined the name because the child feels as if they are getting smaller or as if they are getting bigger or as if things are moving further away. And it's remarkable when that a family with those symptoms in a child comes in. And as a neurologist, I feel like a detective collecting information. They say, you know, this is the strangest thing. We don't know if, you know, he or she is making it up. They tell me, I give them reassurance that, yes, I have heard of this. Yes, there's nothing to be a alarmed about. And then the father or the mother mentioned, you know, I did experience similar symptoms when I was a child. And you start to put together that really strange things and symptoms that people didn't talk about are actually uh, inheritable neurologic conditions. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. You know, when you see a kid in that situation, you know, I don't know how often tumors are found to be responsible. Mm. Um, you know, as someone who's a generalist, yeah. um, I would worry. I mean, if I was a parent, as a, a, a sort of a doctor parent, yes. and found out my kid was having a seizure, Certainly. that'd be one of the things I'd be terrified about. Yeah. And I imagine that you must sort of think about that when you see a kid as being oh, yes. one of the things that you worry that you're going to mm-hmm. find when you do the imaging. Yes. When I mention structural etiologies for focal epilepsies, absolutely. A neoplasm of any kind, a tumor, is a possibility. Um, In no way is it an urgent need to get an urgent 
MRI. We prefer MRIs in children because they visualize the back of the brain better and there's no radiation and there's better um, visualization of the brain tissue itself. Have you been in that situation where you've diagnosed, a child has come to you with, say, epilepsy or a headache, and then you've discovered they've got a brain tumor? Yes, I have. Uh, I have been in that situation. Um, I have not yet been in the situation where it was a malignant brain tumor. I have been in the situation so far where it was a benign tumor that was not able to be resected because it was in an eloquent language area, meaning a part of the brain that was necessary for expressive speech to be functioning. And in a situation like that, the child into young adulthood, adulthood would, will be on lifelong daily uh, seizure medications. Because you don't want to touch it. No, we're not removing that. Um, there are certain situations where a discussion about removing a lesion or a abnormality causing a seizure would be discussed, even if that abnormality was in an eloquent part of the brain, a part of the brain that you need for a specific function, specifically in very young children, or especially in children that were, um, scratch that, in very young children, there is a risk benefit of what is their likelihood of regaining that function that function shifting to the other side of the brain, and but in an older child, that would not be the case. Unless, of course, the epilepsy was so refractory that the family made that decision after careful evaluation. I've certainly, as an ER doc, seen families in that desperate situation where the kid just sees it all the time despite being on multiple drugs. Oh, yes. We... We don't have any magic medications that will prove effective for everyone. And we really can only get to a 65% seizure-free rate in children, young adults that are started on one or two or three combined seizure medications. So it's, it's you know, in the most... Um, optimistic version of the world, a child will have a great success without any side effects from one seizure medication. However, the reality is that 40% of kids will be refractory and have to think and discuss with me and my team or other epilepsy teams, other options, non-pharmaceutical options, surgical options. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. You know, I've had a thought recently in hearing that whole story about his symptom. And there it's one symptom, but an all-important symptom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's one of the trends in media these days in discussing medicine is, will AI replace us? And the one thing that I think is the Achilles heel of AI replacing us is, is turning what patients say into symptoms, at least for me. You know, patients don't come up and say, I'm having episodes of vertigo lasting 30 seconds provoked by change in head movement, right? right? 
I mean, they might actually be having nothing that you and I would think about as vertigo. They might be having dysrhythmias and actually be what I would think of as lightheaded. And there's a lot of teasing out between, you know, my head is spinning to actually trying to work out. Is this, you know, a central problem where someone might be having a stroke and feeling that things are spinning because of a stroke or an inner ear problem? Um, or are they actually just having a cardiac dysrhythmia and they're getting dizzy because they're not getting enough blood to their head? And I can't imagine AI really hearing people and sifting, because the words don't come out like I'm no. having deja vu. No, they don't come out. And I'm very fortunate for the time that insurance companies give me with a new patient visit, but they, they absolutely don't come out that way. I couldn't agree with you more. I don't see a way that AI could replace the human conversations and trying to delve into what the exact episode or feeling is that a child or an adult is having, speaking to adult neurology as well. And I certainly was drawn to the field of neurology because of how much it relied on patient conversations, patient, parent, doctor conversations, and a very detailed physical examination. And maybe I live to see the day that a AI attempts to recreate that, but I would be very humbled if that was able to happen. So, um, can you talk about a case where you were able to, you know, in the old 19th century style, someone came with a complaint. It wasn't something that you knew from the first five seconds. You did have to try to process their symptoms a bit. You had to work maybe with things about the patient or their, or their family that weren't easy to decipher. Something on the exam where you pieced it together, but you pieced it together that day. It wasn't just because, you know, you sent it off to get imaged or you got an EEG, but you actually puzzled it out. Absolutely. The, the world of movement disorders is an enigma. Really, you, you might hear about things, you might learn something, see it in a PowerPoint, watch a video. Um, but I feel like in neurology, until you see it for the first time, it, at least for me, it doesn't all come together. So I saw twins, twin eight-year-old boys in my office one day, and the chief complaint on my schedule was actually seizure. I don't know how it was listed as that, but I'm speaking to these two boys and their father, and they're telling me that for as long as they can remember, every so often they would get stuck. And I'm figuratively scratching my head as they tell me that. And they further describe that they would possibly, upon standing up, or sitting down or jumping, get stuck on one side of their body. So I asked them to show me, which I, for your benefit, can't show you right now over this video recording, but they demonstrate their arm assuming a funny position and their face assuming a funny position, which they did not describe to me, but only showed me when asked, can you show me what you're feeling? 
So then I see that there is a strange positioning of their face and of their arm and sometimes of their leg on one side of the body that's been happening through the years when they get up from a chair. And I'm reaching in my head for what type of um, what type of condition this is. I know it's a dystonia, right? It's a contradictory muscle contraction that's happening. I know it's paroxysmal because it's out of nowhere. It's suddenly. Um, and then I remember that paroxysmal dyskinesias can happen with movement or without movement. And I know that this is a paroxysmal kinesiogenic dyskinesia. So paroxysmal happening seemingly out of nowhere, kinesiogenic triggered by a movement and a dyskinesia, an unwanted abnormal muscle contortion. And these are brothers, both of whom had it. This is an autosomal dominant condition. There is a known genetic cause for it. We can treat it as we do treat movement disorders with different medications, some of which are anti-seizure medications. And all of that is great. But the dad just wants to hear that it's not a seizure. He is not interested in all. And I understand that he and I might be on different wavelengths, of course. He doesn't want to do anything else. He just says, I'm happy that these aren't seizures. It's not interfering that much with their life. We're going to try some alternative remedies. And that was it. I followed up with him the following week because I had spoken to our neurology genetic counselors. I understood that there was actually free testing being offered for the specific genetic condition. Called him. He did not want to have any of that obtained. I discussed with him, how about a one-week trial, two-week trial of a medication? He didn't want to try it, and I haven't heard back from him. So sometimes there are those very interesting conditions, but often the family rightfully, although you hope you've given them good information to make an educated decision, doesn't want to pursue the sort of B, C, D, and E of Right. In your head, what comes after making that diagnosis? You are listening to Medical Murmurs. What are the highs and the lows of your working life? The highs are definitely... I know I've used this word many times, but I'm going to say again, being a detective, sitting down, meeting a family, trying to get to the core in discussions with a toddler about what they're actually experiencing. Definitely the highs for me. And I love conversations. I, I was drawn to medicine for the humanity of it. The highs for me are interactions with families and with patients and hopefully coming to a diagnosis. Um, the lows are when a family is, when I am not having a productive conversation with a family for any number of reasons. You know, you can't always find the exact 
wavelength that um, a person is on to have a productive conversation with them. And that happens in, in every field of work. Uh, that is frustrating, of course. Try and make every conversation productive. Um, the other lows are when the diagnosis is very poor and when you are going to have a ongoing relationship with a family but surrounding a diagnosis that there are no treatments for or there are some potential treatments for and unfortunately watching a child lose function, which does happen. What's that like for you, being a parent? I wish I had words to describe what that is for me. I, I have been able to separate my family from work in my head. I also think for me, being a parent helps me be a better physician in those situations. I think pulling all the medicine and office away, I am a person talking to another person who is a a parent and I am a parent and there are a lot of just humane conversations and sometimes you know I'm seeing them for a follow-up we're not changing anything and I'm just seeing how they're doing seeing if there's any way I could make their daily life better whether it's talking about hospice or talking about um, little things really little things it could even be hey did you know that there's um clothing that has holes for g-tubes to come out of oh no i didn't know that but that would make my trip to the beach easier things like that can you give an example of of, of a kid that you've had a long relationship with obviously without you know identifiers um but where you've watched a child lose function absolutely i was very humbled that my first week on service as an attending at the hospital I met a nine-month-old who was reportedly normally developing child who had a typical febrile illness, did go into focal status, so unremitting seizures of one side of their body. Those seizures stopped and they never did anything again that they had been doing before other than smile and open their eyes. So this was a child that was sitting up, clapping, waving, saying, Dada, Mama. And the next day was in a hospital bed, looking around and smiling, but not doing anything else. And uh, underwent a very large workup. Of course, whenever there is a large significant regression in the setting of a febrile illness we think about mitochondrial disorders mitochondrial disorders can present in various various ways and i am humbled by them but specifically regression in the setting of a fever does make you concerned for that and the um, rushed genetic evaluation was consistent with a diagnosis of pol g or otherwise known as Alpers syndrome, Alpers disease. And this was a fulminant presentation of a mitochondrial disorder. The child is now 18 months. She is on um, various medications that are aimed to improve mitochondrial function. She is home on hospice. She is able to pick her arms and legs up off the ground and 
push her head up a little bit when she's on her belly, but she, and she is breathing on her own, but she is G-tube fed and uh, non-ambulatory and non-communicative. For me, that it still is a very rewarding relationship that I have with the family and I'm very excited to see them for follow-up and I do communicate with them um, through email and through the electronic medical record portal. Um, I did think about going into palliative care. A lot of neurologists do pursue palliative care, uh, but I still find that rewarding because someone has to be that child's doctor and I'm honored to be that child's doctor. Devastating still. Yes, absolutely devastating. And I hope I can continue to provide some something for her. And when it don't, I mean, presumably by the time the seizure stopped and the parents in the hours following that got some sense that the child did not just snap back to being who they were before, I mean, you were on service, you were working with them. What was that like? Well, as a new attending, that was that was everything I thought could possibly happen in your first week being an attending on service. I had residents, fellows, medical students, pharmacy uh, members, nurse practitioners working under me, looking for me to for advice. And, you know, one of the biggest questions I had, I knew this was bad, right? We were looking for a name for it in our genetic pursuits and to see if there were any specific treatments that could help, of course. But how frank to be with the family, that is something that I had to navigate for myself, this was my first conversation with a family about a new diagnosis of a life-changing disease. And there's no right answer there. You'll find physicians that go about that conversation in many different ways. And I guess I learned in my training or I picked up that my style was going to be to not beat around the bush, to obviously confront what the discussion was about, to give the family time, and to just see if there were any questions, and then come back day after day, obviously, because they were inpatient, to have further discussions over um, what we think the prognosis might be, what the variations of prognosis might be, and what I found, what I told them is their response was, and this is just one family was, we're so relieved you're actually telling us that because we had been Googling and we came to the same conclusion, which has a lot of humor in it. But I, I guess what I want to get at is never hide a something from a family because they're probably thinking that even if they don't have a name for it, clearly this is really bad. Dr. Marissa Prelak, thank you for appearing on Medical Mamas. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest. 
where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. Check it out.